Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're looking at verses 12 through 14. And last week we finally arrived at the application section of this great chapter, hence our little scope there. This is our target, the target of, of not just thinking, but, but doing. We looked at the first part last week, the, the negative side of the equation. We're going to look at the positive side this morning. There were two prohibitions that told us what not to do. And today we'll look at the one command that tells us what we, we must do as believers who are in union with, with Jesus Christ. Paul, for five and a half chapters, has laid out doctrine. Truth upon truth. He's shown us our sin and condemnation in chapters 1, 2. In the first half of 3, he's detailed the glorious hope of the gospel. I mean, deep dive into the gospel in the second half of chapter 3. He turned our eyes to the consistency uh, from the Old and New Testament, particularly the Old in chapter 4, that salvation has always been by faith alone. He pointed out David and then... Father Abraham, he then presented the glorious assurance that we have uh, in chapter 5 through the promises of, of God that are ours having been justified and our new representative. We're no longer in Adam, but we're in Christ. And he's finally brought us to rest in chapter 6, revealing our union with Christ and his death to sin. And now Paul brings us to... Two potent verses which call us to action. It calls us to war, in, in fact. Paul says if all of these things are true, and they are, then you and I, as believers, as Christians, should live differently. If you're a Christian, it ought to make a difference in your life, how, how you live. You must not only believe the truth, but you must apply the, the truth, and you may have heard the, the statement before, I mean, the church is a hospital for sinners and not a hotel for saints. Have you ever heard that before? That's likely a good sentiment behind that, but that is a completely incorrect statement. It's neither one of those things. We are not patients in a hospital this morning as if we're here waiting for somebody to do something to us or for us, as if we're helpless sinners laying on a hospital bed. Lloyd-Jones said it's more like uh, the church is a barracks where soldiers are prepared for battle. Now, an unsaved person surely comes to the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can heal your soul with the gospel. And in that case, you are a patient you don't even know the medicine to take. You don't even have the ability to lift your hand to take the medicine into your mouth apart from the grace of God. But once that medicine, that balm has been applied to your soul and you're regenerated and transformed, then you're equipped and sent out to do the Lord's work as a servant, which is why you gather on Sunday morning to worship Christ and to be equipped to do the, the work of the ministry. And so in verses 2 through 10 of chapter 6... Paul explains what the physician has done whenever we, we came to him initially for healing. And then in verses 11 through 14, he gives us our marching orders as soldiers, which is where 
He has brought us. In fact, application is the very thing that Paul's been arguing since verse 1. His, his application of grace has been questioned. He's being accused of this doctrine that he's preaching will, will lead to a lack of application, that the, the doctrines of grace will lead to a doing of sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul's answer is, may it never be. May genointa. He, he, he sees grace without engaging in the battle against sin, not as saving grace. It's not real grace. It's, it's cheap grace. It's counterfeit grace. It's like one of those mock recipes that you find off of the internet uh, um, for your favorite fast food restaurant. And whenever you make it, it's more of a mockery of your taste buds than a mock rest recipe. I mean, it's, a, it's not a true replacement for the real thing. I mean, to say it plainly, the New Testament does not teach that you're passive in your Christianity. The let go and let God uh, viewpoint that was popular years ago. We have to fight the good fight of faith, which means that we have to do some fighting as believers. Now, thank God we're able to fight now. We're able to do that the moment uh, that we believe. That's through the new life that's in us, the power of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly where Paul's going to point us today. He gives us four imperative commands here to walk in this new reality that he's just described, and we'll pick up where we left off in verse 13. But let's, let's go back to verse 11 and see it all together. Here's the first command that's related to your thinking. Even so... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. After what he's talked about Christ and how he died to sin. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but, uh, but alive to God. To reckon, to calculate. There's the first command. To consider. Consider all that Christ's death and resurrection means for us. Take this into in, into account, take this death into account, take it seriously, and then regard ourselves as dead to sin. His death brings a result or a benefit in, in our life. Now, if you're, now that you're a believer and you've been regenerated, there's a change in how you relate to sin, how you relate to God, and all that's because of your, you're in Christ Jesus. All, of, all that's because you're in union with, with Him. And, and next, he applies the, the, the truth with, with some action, not just thinking, but action. So there's two prohibitions related to what we must not do concerning, concerning enduring sin, and then one command related to, to, to the new life. So in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. We looked at those last two last week. We'll look at the final one today, which is in verse 13. I mean, these two verses mean that a Christian cannot go on living their life, or the, 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 their, their life as they did before, before they came to Christ. And it's probably also not going to be a comfortable life all of the, the time. We must fight. And now we can. We cannot, Paul says. We, we must not let sin go unopposed reigning, trying to reign over our daily lives. And so it's a command to consider the facts and then act accordingly. We, we called it two commands to act according to the facts about your, your salvation. You must fight to mortify sin. First two commands compacted into that one. 
and then we must live to magnify God. Second half of verse 13 and 14. Last week we said that the, the, you must fight to mortify sin. Do not obey sin's influence. It still has an influence. And don't offer sin instruments. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. This is the command. Do not let sin reign. There's a sphere where that reign is exercised in your mortal bodies. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And then there's a result, which is also tied to the reigning, so that you obey its desires. You obey your body's desires. Reigning is a word that Paul has used before. It means to rule like a king or sit like a lord. So Paul is saying, do not let sin sit as a lord over you now that you're in union with Christ. Don't let it sit on the throne directing your, your body. I mean, prior to, to the change of masters that happened in salvation, we, we had to do what, what sin said. Now, you might have found the ability to say no here or there, but in general, you were a slave to sin, which is what the Bible teaches. But now he says we're not supposed to do what it, what it says. We have a choice to disobey sin's voice now that you're a Christian. Now, only the gospel can bring about that transformation. A transformation that takes you from a slave to the ability to say no to sin. We didn't have a choice before, but now we do. So we, so we must refuse it, is what Paul is saying. You shouldn't get any idea from the Bible that sin is dead, or that you won't face temptation, or it doesn't have lure any longer. I mean, that's what you get when you get, into, when you get heaven. And I can't wait for, for that day. But sin is alive and well on the earth. Sin still tempts. It tempts us through our natural desires. And Paul tells us in this verse where sin will try to come in under the door. So we're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. It's not just a focus on the physical body, we said last week. It's reminding you that mortal, you're still part of this, of, of this earth. Sin still targets its attack, and it targets its attack in in this frame, this mortal frame that you have, which includes your mind and your feelings and your body. But he's saying that that's finite, that's temporary. It's still affected by the curse. You have been transformed. You have been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have been given a divine nature. And one day you'll be given a new body. You'll have a spiritual body. But right now you have a mortal body and you're still living on the earth under the curse you've been given the ability to say no to sin through this new nature that you've been given, but sin, sin's still going to try to take, take ownership. So Paul is saying as believers, we must not allow the influence of this world to hold sway in our human faculties, in our minds, in our feelings, in our physical biology. One day, one day, this mortal shall put on immortality. Won't that be a day, 1 Corinthians 15. But until then, in the meantime, there's war, and you're fighting. You should be fighting. You shouldn't be asleep in the barracks. You're not to be influenced by sin's passions, the body's passions or lust, so that you obey those and therefore allow sin to come back on the throne. I mean, Paul is saying sin is not only a king trying to reign, but it uses our mortal flesh like a magnet to dupe us try to pull us toward its, its power. Sin is personified here, so you can't let sin go unchallenged. That's your enemy. 
Because if you do, then you will obey the desires, lusts of your, your fallen nature. And when you, when you do that, then you're going to do something that's contrary to what you are now as a Christian. You're going to be used as an instrument for evil. Look at verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So don't obey sin's influence. It still has an influence in the world. And do not offer sin instruments. You would then, if you follow what Paul is saying, or you don't follow what Paul's saying here, then you actually become a weapon. Your hands, your eyes, your mind can become a weapon in the hands of the enemy. So he goes from the general to the specific. He says, don't let sin reign in the body. And now he talks about the individual members of the body, the individual members of a mortal person. Your mind, your will, your emotions, your eyes, your hands. He says, don't go on presenting these things as tools to do bad things. Don't present them as weapons in the enemy's hands. That's what you used to do whenever you were part of the kingdom of darkness, but you're not part of that kingdom any longer. I mean, this is the barracks part of our earlier illustration, that you're not a patient in a hospital. I mean, this part of the passage tells us that yielding to sin, yielding our members to sin, is, is not passive. It's active. It's volitional. It's a choice. Now, understand, there's been a lot of little choices that led you to that one final choice, to lend your eyes, to look at something that would be inappropriate. As MacArthur said years ago, whenever a man falls, he doesn't fall far. He's already close to the ground. There, there's been a number of defections until the, the final AWOL that's taken place. So I understand that. I'm not saying you just wake up one day and say, ah, I'm going to choose to be a tool in the devil's hands today. But you've made 10, 15, maybe 100 choices that moved you in that direction, which is why the general warning up first, be careful, sin's trying to get back on the throne. This is the way it tries to get back on the throne. There are desires there, those deceptive desires, and don't fall to the end. Because when we turn our faculties in service to sin, we're, we're making an active choice. So Paul says, fight. Fight hard. Fight on. Fight until you've reached the finish. Don't give up. Thinking is not enough. Doctrine is not enough. Thinking and knowing must lead you to action. And you must be about the work of dethroning sin when it tries to climb back on the chair or, or sin will dominate you. And maybe you were here last week. Maybe you weren't. Maybe you're here last week. Maybe you're here this week and you're sitting there listening to that and you're saying, Pastor... That's what I'm trying to do. I mean, I am fighting. I am fighting hard. And quite frankly, I'm often failing. And what I'm hearing is fight, 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 and that's what I'm doing. And so I'm not finding a lot of hope in this passage. What I'm hearing is more of what I'm supposed to do. And I know that. I know sin is bad. And I know it's alive and well on planet Earth. I'm in the fight, but I'm defeated and I can't seem to find the answer to why. Well, if that's you, may I say to you this morning, this passage is not over. You've only went through part of it. And it's the next part of this passage where you're probably going to find the hope and the help that you're looking for if, if you feel that way this morning. 
You see, if you apply only half of this passage, then you're going to find dry commands to work harder and to do more. But if you see both of them together, you see all the commands together, as God intended, then you're going, you're going to find oil that, that will lubricate the engine, you, even the power that, that moves you along the spiritual interstate that, that you need to be on. So Paul gives a second command here, which is you must live to magnify God. And he says there's a resurrected relationship in that battle. There's resurrection power. There's resurrected living. There's specific things that you do. And then there's a reminder of victory in, in a promise. Look if you would at verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but, here's the other side, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. But present yourselves to God. There's the relationship. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. There's the resurrected power. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's the living. And then verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you're under law. For you're not under law, but, but under grace. And there's the, the promise. So now here's the contrast to the two prohibitions. And notice it starts with a but. Do not present your members to sin because you do not belong to that master anymore, but present yourselves to God because you do belong to Him now. And then Paul adds something very important. He says, you do this as those alive from the dead. It's causal. You do this because you're alive from the dead, indicating believers should present themselves to God because there's been a change, there's spiritual life in them. And with those words, he reminds us of our resurrected relationship. You present yourself unto God and resurrection power that accompanies it because you're alive from the dead, which is what you need in order to do the, the do's and the don'ts. So Paul reaches back into the theology section of verses 2 through 10, and he points us where the passion and the power to obey comes from. I mean, this verse is a reminder that labor cannot be without love, that spiritual effort cannot be without spiritual energy. It's a testimony that denying sin, its position, is not possible without desiring God. That being deaf to sin's call is not possible without delighting in Christ. I mean, Paul doesn't stop with, stop with the, the negative prohibition. He goes on to the positive. It, it's just like the gospel, right? I mean, the gospel gives us the negative. Uh, you are in your sin. There's the wrath of God abiding on you because of that. You're a slave to sin. I mean, that's news. All that's true. That's news. But it's not until you get to the other part. It doesn't stop there that it becomes good news. I mean, for God just to tell us we're sinners and that we have no hope in our sin, that's news, but that's not good news. And the gospel doesn't stop there. It goes on to tell you that God's not left you without help, that that He loves you, that Christ has come to you, and that there's salvation in, in His Son. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if this text stopped with the, the two negative prohibitions of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13, it would be morality, not the gospel. And he said, this is not a call to morality. This is Christianity. 
which is spiritual. It's not natural. So Paul goes on and explains relationship and the power that God has given us to, to live out this new life. I mean, that's the difference, frankly, between Christianity and ethics. I mean, the ethical man or the moral man can see by nature or by living long enough that, that left to himself, he's a mess or he's full of chaos, as Joan said. So they hold on to systems and disciplines and philosophies of self-empowerment or the school of hard knocks or tough love or whatever it is. But Christianity goes beyond all of that. It speaks of power outside of yourself, outside of this world, a power provided by God Himself, a power that has now taken up residence within you. And you may be struggling to obey the first two commands and overcome sin's lure because you're only applying half of the verse. It's not enough to be dead to sin. You have to see that you're also alive to God. And you're in relationship with Him. So present yourselves unto God. And therefore, His power is now available to you as one who's alive from the dead. Joel James said, focusing only on the dead to sin part usually turns Romans 6 into some kind of self-focused, legalistic effort. It's more self-help than spiritual work. Sadly, there's a lot that presents itself as Christianity that's nothing more than that. I don't want to be ugly in, in any way or impugn anybody's motives, but as I've said to you before, Joel Osteen doesn't work in Saudi Arabia. What you find with the health wealth preachers and, you know, on TV or the, the 10 ways to fix your finances doesn't work whenever you're in prison in China. It just doesn't work. It's useless. It's not real Christianity. That can be very discouraging. It's maybe why you're feeling disheartened this morning. It, it, you know, it, it may be why you've lost your joy for the spiritual work you're called to do. It's, it's not until you add the life to Christ part, the supernatural part, that, that this becomes a Christian struggle against sin. You may know you should struggle against sin, but you may not be engaged in a Christian struggle against sin. Fight a Christian way. Paul says. And he said, if you want to see an example, or Joel, um, Joel James said, if you want to see an example of the opposite of what Paul is saying here, then look to the Christian ascetics or the monks. They starve themselves, they deny themselves, they beat their bodies into submission. And the question is, is any of that Christian? I mean, ask yourself the question, what makes what I am doing in battling sin any different from what I could do apart from Christ? And if you can't find an answer, then there's a problem. Is any of it the life-transforming power of Christ in operation? I mean, something that we didn't have in ourselves, something that's not in our own strength? If not... There's nothing about being in Christ in, in that at all. It's simply human determination driven by biblical command. Now, now, now don't pull, a, pull that apart too far because this is what Paul's going to talk about in, in chapter 7. The law, the do's and the don'ts are not bad. In fact, they reveal to us what we should do. The problem is it has no transforming power. You need the power of the gospel. But the do's and don'ts are not bad. The battle against sin is not bad. Sin is bad. Sin is evil. 
Sin is the problem. Without the transforming of power of Christ, we, we are the problem as well. Human determination driven by biblical command. Joel said, think of what Paul is saying here like, like tires on a car when, when you're driving. There, there's two sets of tires, and sometimes they can get out of, get out of alignment. And when they do, it, one wears, and you have to get realigned. He said one of those sets of tires is the dead to sin part. The other set is the alive to Christ part. You have to keep both of them in their lane and both of them properly aligned. And so it's not just putting off an opportunity for the flesh, it's putting on Christ. And to fight sin in a Christian way, you do both. It's both sides of the coin. Both of them are necessary for spiritual growth. And you might find yourself given one way or the other. You might find yourself more toward the, you know, the, the dependence on God, or you may find yourself more on doubling down, which is why Paul gives both of these commands here. Now, you can't keep yourself plugged into the current of, of sin. The current of sin can't keep flowing. You need to unplug yourself from that wall socket, James said. But then you need to plug into God and have His current flowing through you as well. Joel said the poster child for trying to kill sin without a personal relationship is a Catholic priest beating himself, thinking, if I hurt more, then maybe I will want to sin less. That's not Christianity. That's not what Paul's advocating here. It's a love relationship with an incomprehensible and great God. And it's that love relationship which gives you the desire to resist sin's call. Check yourself with this principle. Ask yourself the question, what do you think God wants most from you? Obedience or love? If you said obedience first, if that was the first thing that came to obey, then you need to check yourself. There may be something off. Now we understand, of course, that you can't pull those two things apart. They go together. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So this is not pitting obedience with love. It's examining our hearts to see what, what, we're, what we're slanted toward. Because which one of those comes first? They're both requirement. Is obedience first? No, love is first. And that's what God ultimately desires from you, for you to love Him. In fact, the Bible says He loved you first so that you could love Him. And it is in that loving relationship with God that moves you to obey Him. You see, if you get that out of order, you're going to be a dry shell of a Christian. You might be a believer, but you're going to be a miserable one. You're going to run out of gas, and maybe that's why your tank is empty this morning. Or worse, you're going to try to put something else in that gas tank to keep you going. And that could be sinful things to keep running or counterfeit things like mysticism or monasticism, the taste not, touch not, handle not. And none of that's going to get you where you, you need to be. None of that's going to refill your tank. If you feel like that, you might need to go back and look at your Savior. You might need to set aside all of your structural agenda this week. You read through the Bible a year, your super-duper prayer system, or whatever your normal method is that you're, just, you're, 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 you're cranking the screws down because you don't feel it and you're empty, so I just got to do more. Set that aside this week and instead read every passage that you can find about Jesus Christ and ask yourself, what does this teach about Him? Who is my Savior? Look at His friendly heart 
Look at your Savior and then, and then live. And once you've reconvinced yourself about who God is, then you can rethink about doing His commands. Because He's given you power. Real power. Power beyond self-help. Look, if you would, at verse 13 again. He says, but present yourselves to God, there's the relationship part, as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness. As those alive from the dead. Present yourselves to God because you're now in relationship to Him. But you also have power as those alive from the dead. That's the power part. Notice I didn't say that God gives you the power to kill sin. He's already told you that sin is dead to you. Its reign is dead. I said it's a love relationship that gives you the desire to resist sin's call. And if you're walking in that love relationship, then you will say, I have no desire to let sin do that. I have no desire to let it get back on the throne. I have no desire to yield my members to, to sin. But God has also given you a new power. And that power is the power of the new age. It's new covenant power. That's what he's saying here. Look back in the theology portion. I mean, here, he gives the command assuming that you're remembering what he said in the theology part. He says that, um, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Well, what does he mean? What's this power that comes from being alive from the dead? Well, look back at verse 4 and 5. Remind yourself of this power that Paul is referencing here, assuming that you remember this. But understand, it's like, you know, six months ago or something when we went through this passage. Verse 4. Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, this is what happened to Christ, this is the statement, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, there's the power, glorious power of the Father, raised Christ from the dead. So we too, having this same power now, being in Christ, so we too might walk in newness of life. I mean, God says that Christians don't just get separated from the old life, they, they, they get raised to a new one. And Paul doesn't just tell us what happened, he describes this manner of life, that's what happened with Christ. And he says the result of that is something in a Christian's life. And he says it's a new life, or living, the newness, in, in newness of life. And the word newness refers to a new quality, a new character. You don't live the way that you used to. It's not just an old life, but it also points to where the power comes from. It's a new life that has new power. It's the new age that's coming. You're under the new covenant. We're buried with Christ for the purpose that we might walk in newness of life, that we might live a new way, that we might have a new lifestyle. But the word newness means that that new life is now empowered by the realities of the new age. What's coming? And that's operating right now. There's still stuff that is going to be, that's going to happen in the new covenant, but you're living in the new covenant age. It's dawn. At the resurrection of Jesus, the new age to come has invaded this old one. And it's in your heart. And it's working itself out into the world. And so sin exercises its influence. And it can still do that, but it cannot be master over you. And sin has and, in, and inflames our desires, which is the influence. And 
The place that it exercises that influence is in and through your mortal bodies and you yield your bodies to its influence. When you do that, you obey it and it's playing Lord over you again. But you're commanded to go one step further to do the opposite because of this resurrection relationship and resurrection power. You can yield yourself to God. I mean, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And Paul says kingdom power has entered this present evil age at the resurrection, and it's now in you. And because you're in Christ, that same power is there. So he says, use it. <laughs> you try to do this without using that power, you're not going to get anywhere. But beyond the relationship piece and the power source, there are practical actions that you must take. Here's the resurrected living. Look at verse 13. But present yourselves to God. There's the relationship. As those alive from the dead, you, you, you have the, the power of God in you, new covenant power that he'll remind you of in verse 14. And, here's the living part, and your members as instruments of righteousness. Rubber meets the road. Follows the same pattern that he did in verse 12. He goes from the general to the specific. Don't let sin set as king on your heart to where you give your hands and your eyes and your mind and everything else as instruments. He goes from the general here, present yourselves to God and the specific, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He says, now in contrast to what you did before, present the same tools, the same weapons, the same instruments that were once in service to sin for unrighteous purposes, present them to God for righteous ends. That's the idea. To my shame, before I came to Christ, I used this mouth to curse the living God. And now I use this mouth to preach the glorious gospel of Christ. Only Jesus Christ can change a person like that. He can only change you. He can take a body that was given over to immorality and all manners of immorality, and He can turn that into a body that's laid down for Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives. That's what He's calling for here. You present yourselves to God and your members as instruments of righteousness. This is resurrected living. It comes from a relationship and power. It's, it's not just presenting yourself to God, but presenting your ind individual members. And don't miss going from the general to the specific. I mean, it's one thing to say, I've given my life to Christ. It's another thing to talk about your wallet, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, I've given my heart to Jesus. But what about your eyes? What about your time? You see how it flushes us out? We hide behind the general, and Paul doesn't let us do that. God doesn't let us do that. We must take those abilities and the things that God has given us out of the devil's hands and put them into God's hands. And you say, well, I'm not doing anything for the devil. But are you doing something for God? That's what Paul is saying. Are you doing something for God? Let me give you a very helpful principle to obey this verse. It's one of the ways that the Bible teaches us to, to do this in practice. Very practical. One of the ways that we overcome wrong is by doing right. This is what Paul talks about in his other epistles. 
of putting off and putting on. You may be failing to, to fulfill what Scripture says because you're only putting off and you're not putting on. And without the resurrected relationship and resurrection power, that's just spiritless morality. But with those things, this is the PTO, the tractor PTO that connects to the plow. You're not going to do right very long without any permanent success if there's not love that's motivating in the background. But, but with that motivation intact, the working of righteousness is, is the actual battlefield work. It's the actual hand-to-hand combat with, with the enemy. And the principle that the Bible gives us is putting off and and putting on. You you say, well, I want to do something for God. What does that look like? Well, let's go back to our verse that we we used last week. I think this is, you go to any of them, in Ephesians 4 or in Colossians 3. But this one's so plain to see. It's just easy to see with this one verse. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor forming with his hands what is good, so that, here's the result, that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let him who stole steal no more. There's the, there's the put off. It's the command to cease from sin because of this living relationship operated by, by love. Why does someone who steals, want to steal no longer because they're now Christ. They love God. They they don't want to do evil anymore. But it goes one step further, bringing it to full circle. But work with your hands. Put on. Put off and put on. And this is what will keep you from going back to sin or allowing sin to sit on the throne. Active hands doing right will keep you from filling it with evil Things. And the result of that, putting off and putting on, is so that you'll have something to share with, with the one who, who's in need. This is the verse that ends the same way that Paul does here in Romans. Doing something for God. Doing something good. Being an instrument in the Lord's hands. You, you stole with your hands because you wanted something for yourself. And, and, and now you, you work with your hands so that you may express your love for God toward others. You may be used by God by taking what you have and now, and now helping other people with it. Or you could go to the mind, not just the hands, the active mind. An active mind meditating on God will keep you from filling your mind with, with wicked things. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. I'm sure you know this. If you haven't, you, you need to memorize it. How can a young person or a young man keep his way pure? Now, some of you might not even be asking that question, and you need to start there. You need purity in your life. It's going to send you to hell. But how can a young person keep his way pure? Keep it that way. Well, by keeping it according to your word. With my whole heart have I sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. I'm dependent upon God in this fight. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so I am removing the garbage and I'm treasuring God's Word in my heart. I'm putting off. I'm cutting off the siphons, whatever is putting the junk in my head, and I'm filling it with Christ. If you just stop watching Game of Thrones or whatever it is that you're you're watching, that's only half the battle. Now you've got to put the Bible in it. And whenever you do, you'll not sin against the Lord. And this whole passage ends with a, 
with a promise. There's a motivation here. So much motivation for this, this long battle, this long fight that won't be over until heaven. Look at verse 14. It says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but grace. There's actually two fours there. There are two gars there. For sin shall not be master over you, explaining what he just got done saying. And then explaining that statement, for you are not under law, but, but under grace. And here is a reminder in promise. And we're back to where we started in verse 20 and 21, talking about law and grace. I mean, a good paraphrase of this is sin will no longer be your Lord because you have a new Lord and you're under grace. You're under the new covenant. There's a promise. Sin shall not be master over you because of a fact, because you are not under law, but grace. Now, Paul will teach us over a long time in chapter 7 what he means by law, the principle of law, the Mosaic law. But here he, he brings us back to where, where he started. The second half of verse 14 gives you the reason this promise is secure. If you're, you're not under the condemnation of the law, but you're under the uh, un, unmerited favor of, of, of grace. Look back to Romans 5, verses 20 and 21. He says, the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our, our Lord. For sin shall not be master of you, for you are not under law but under grace. Law is not bad. The commands of God are not bad. We are bad, but you're not under law any longer. Law doesn't have the power to transform you, and you need someone or something to transform you, and then you need something to empower you. And you're not under law, you're under grace. And this grace is now flooding, it's raining in your life. And so this second half of the verse gives you the reason for that, that promise. You must constantly avoid using your abilities and resources in service to sin and continually place... Your natural capacities and abilities in service to God, for you are not under law, but, but under grace. It's an explanation of his statement that sin shall no longer be in lordship over you. It's an explanation that's to give us assurance. For a believer, sin has been dethroned, and that's a reality now. And there is an embedded promise about the future. I mean, if God has dethroned sin through Christ and you're already in Him, then He will surely complete His work in the resurrection. You're not going to go backwards. You're not going to lose what you have. Sin is personified as a force. It shall not exercise lordship over you ever again because you're, you're not under the old age, but, but under grace. You're not under the old covenant. You're under the new, which is where he started at the end of chapter 5. The flooding grace that engulfs you and empowers you. That's what's reigning. That's what you have access to. That's what you're under, not the law. The law did nothing but increase transgression because it has no power to do anything but that. But the promises found in the statement, 
sin shall not have dominion over you is in the words, it shall not have, it shall not have. And because God has promised the ultimate victory of your salvation, it, it, it will never change. That will never change. Paul's reminding us that as new covenant believers, we're not given new instructions. We're given new natures. We're not given more law with the coming of Christ. We're given the, we're given the reign of grace. The new covenant is unlike the old. The new covenant has new power. <laughs> I often repeat a helpful saying to myself whenever I get weary in the battle or I find the two steps forward and one step back or two steps forward and three steps back, I, I, I say, Brian, it's, it's not perfection that God desires. It's direction. And you've probably heard that before. I don't remember where I heard it. It's just helpful. It's not perfection. It's direction. And that's true. But where Paul focuses us here is, he focuses me. Paul is saying that here's the, the, the direction. The direction is toward the battle against sin with a guaranteed victory because of grace. So even beyond the direction, there's a promise of progress in the fight. It's not just being pointed in a direction. There's progress that will happen in the fight because of the change. Lloyd-Jones was so helpful to me, my own soul, in this specific passage. He, he closed with this, and I will as well. He said, we, we are often overly subjective. We're always thinking about ourselves, examining ourselves, feeling our spiritual pulse, and that's the wrong approach. We must look at the matter in terms of our calling and think what God has done for us. If you're in Christ, you don't need a doctor, but a sergeant major. Here we are, as it were, slouching about the parade grounds, feeling our own pulses, feeling miserable, talking about our weaknesses, saying, I need a doctor, I need to go to the clinic, I need to see the medical officer. But that is not right. What you need is to listen to the voice of the sergeant major who is shouting out the command of God to not let sin reign in your mortal body. Yield not your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Yield yourself unto God. You have no business to be slouching about like that. Stand to your feet. Realize who and what you are enlisted in the army of God. Present yourselves. This is not a clinic. Remember this. Sin will not have dominion over you. Never. For you are not under law, but under grace. Realize then all that grace means. Read again the terms of the new covenant and live as a man who has read the title deed and says to himself, I have no time to waste. I'm longing for glory. I'm looking forward to it. I must press on. I must purify myself even as he is pure. I must prepare for the great day that is coming so that when I stand before him, I shall not be ashamed. And by God's grace... We will do that very thing. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, a perfect mingling of all that we need in the Scriptures. When we are weak and frail, overtaken in faults, with no energy... You don't just shout commands to us. 
you remind us of our, our relationship with you, how much you love us. You come along and say, I'll help you. Come unto me, all you are, who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You remind us of power. But then on the other side, Lord, when, when we, we need to be woken, we need to be shook from our slumber, you bark commands to us, tell us to wake up. And so, Father, I pray even this morning, there may be someone here who, who is in that patient category. They're, they're, not in the, they're not soldiers yet. They are a patient. And they need Jesus Christ, the great physician, to heal their souls. Maybe they've tried and they have no power because they have no Christ. I pray today that you would help them see that the gospel is news, but it's good news. And that they need to repent and believe. But I pray maybe for a Christian this morning that's weary in the fight. And all they're hearing is commands and do's and don'ts. Remind them of the love that you have for them power that you've already given them. Help them to fight the fight in a Christian way, a spiritual way. And then help all of us, Lord, make progress. You have translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of of your dear Son. The length of time that we gave our hands and our eyes and our bodies to the enemy is enough. Help us now lay ourselves before you and serve you with all we have and all that we are. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen.